today we are talking about the return of the king. And, uh, you know, there's a movie called The Return of the King, you know, the Lord of the Rings series. But this is not that. This is the return of Jesus, the Son of God, when he takes back what is rightfully his. So I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this awesome time. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. This is the accumulation of everything. This is what everything is pointing toward, is when you come back to the earth to claim it for your own and we rule and reign with you for a thousand years and then follows the new heavens and new earth. Lord, we're just so grateful that this is written down, this is true, this is real and we will be with you. We're a part of this. Help us to get excited about this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to jump in and start reading from Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 to 21. I'm going back a couple of verses to give us a context there. So it says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Verse 16 And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Well, at least the birds won't go hungry. Oh, it's a pretty amazing picture, eh? Yeah, we'll jump in. So first is verse 10. John worships the angel. So I'll read verse 10 again. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. So, I fell at his feet to worship him. Think about what John has already seen in chapter 1. He's seen Jesus. He's seen the glorified, risen Jesus. Why would he fall down to worship this angel? Why would he make such a serious mistake as this? Well, two reasons, two possible reasons. Maybe neither of them are true, I don't know. Just trying to think about it. John may have thought that the angel was God, being one of the archangels who poured out the seven bold judgments on the earth. Why? Well, these angels are extremely glorious and powerful. They have the glow of being in the presence of God. 
And in Revelation 18.1, it says that just one of these angels illuminated the whole earth. So that's how bright they are. These angels are pretty amazing. And the second is that simply John could have been overwhelmed and excited by what he was seeing. You know, all this stuff, you know, the, the bride. He was just yeah, overwhelmed and just awestruck and he just, he just lost his bearings and go, oh, yeah. But I, I want to come to an application here. Whatever the reason that John did this, it's a warning to us today of how easily our hearts can be deceived to worship the wrong thing. There are people today who worship angels. An example is those in the New Age religion. They call them spirit guides. However, there's two types of angels. There's fallen angels and there's, I'm going to call them faithful angels. The Bible just calls them angels. The fallen angels are called demons. Okay, so we've got angels, the good angels, and demons, the fallen or bad angels. Now, if you are communicating with an angel, a faithful angel, one that's still true to God, then that angel will do what? Point you to Jesus. Yeah, that's their job. Okay. But if you are talking to a fallen angel or a demon, then they will point you away from God. A good angel, a faithful angel, will never accept any praise or worship. But in contrast, a demon will seek to lead you away from God and will covet your praise and adoration. They will seek your attention. Now, do you realize that all false worship is actually demonic? Like, for example, some cultures worship the dead or engage in ancestor worship. Some people do seances or worship idols or money, pleasure, fame, promotion or sex or drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. We are giving ourselves over to the world system, which is run by Satan. Remember the cosmos? So, listen carefully. Worshipping the world means worshipping Satan. And I've got an example here. Is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 to 18. It says, But Israel soon became fat and unruly. So God blessed them and they forgot about God. The people grew heavy, plump and stuffed. Then they abandoned the God who had made them. They made light of the rock of their salvation. They stirred up his jealousy by worshipping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons which are not God. To gods they had not known before. To new gods only recently arrived. To gods their ancestors had never feared. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. You forgot the God who had given you birth. So they're worshipping foreign gods. And then the next verse it says they offer sacrifices to demons. So the worshipping of foreign gods is offering sacrifices. It's giving of your time, your money, your talents and your gifts. Okay, anything we do for something is an act of surrender, an act of worship. So, as we have previously learned, this evil world system, this cosmos, was put together by who? Satan, okay. He controls it. He is the one whose goal it is to distract people from worshipping the true God by making everything that our sinful nature desires or craves available. Okay, So he puts things in front of our faces all the time, things that we like to see, things that we like to experience. And What are the three things again? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Yeah, that's it. So Satan puts all those things around us and he tempts us with them. Now, Satan is described as a prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And I'll read verses 1 and 2 there. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So, you might think I'm being a bit 
harsh here by saying if you're not worshipping God, you're worshipping Satan, you're worshipping demons. But it says here, if you're not obeying God, you're worshipping the devil. You're obeying the devil. Okay. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So again, to disobey God is to obey Satan regardless of your intentions. Remember that worship, the heart of worship, is all about submission. If I'm submitted to Satan, obeying him, then I'm worshipping him. Satan becomes my master. If I'm submitted to God, obeying God, then I'm worshipping God. God is my master. Romans 6.16 makes it very clear. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So, back to verse 10 in Revelation 19. It says, See that you do not do that. Why? Well, no created being should be worshipped. Only God is worthy of worship. And because Jesus is God, Jesus is also worthy of worship. So I just want to go through a couple of examples where Jesus receives worship. Firstly, Jesus receives worship from angels. Hebrews 1.6 but when he again brings the firstborn, a title of prominence for Jesus, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And another example is in Revelation, and I just want to point out here that the worship given to the Father and the worship given to the Son is the same. So, Revelation 5, 11-13 then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. So Jesus and the Father receive the same worship. Jesus also received the worship of men. Like for example, Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him, and prostrating himself, worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you are able to cleanse me by curing me. And Matthew 14.33, Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. So Jesus accepted the worship of people, of men. Now verse 10, back in Revelation again, it says, I am your fellow servant. So, Listen to what the angel says. I am your fellow servant. So the angels are servants, as are we. We are servants of God. The angels are servants of God. We are both servants of the same Lord. And verse 10, it also says, For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. The true spirit of prophecy always shows itself in bearing witness to Jesus. So I've got three quotes and three different people. It brings this out nice and clear. The first one's from David Hocking. Any teaching of prophecy that takes our minds and hearts away from him is not being properly communicated. And John Walvoord. This means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And Hal Lindsay gives us a warning. This is one of the verses that shows that prophecy is very important to God. So when ministers are too lazy to study prophecy and justify it by saying it's not important, they are messing with very sacred territory. It is the very testimony of Jesus. So, some reasons why we should study prophecy and why it's a blessing to study the book of Revelation because it's all about him. Now we come to the second coming, verses 11 to 16 in Revelation 19. So let's read those verses. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So who is this? 
It's Jesus, yeah. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, just before we look at the text there, I just want to point out two differences between the second coming and the rapture. Because some people say the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. So, a couple of differences, right? At the rapture, Christ meets his own, the saints, in the air. Okay, We go from earth to heaven. In contrast, at the second coming, we are coming back from heaven to earth with Christ and we're riding white horses. Also, at the rapture, there is no evidence of an immediate judgment on the earth. In contrast, at the second coming, Christ comes to the earth with the specific purpose of bringing divine judgment and establishing his righteous rule. So just keep that in mind. Now in verse 11 it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, wow, heaven has just been opened up. Whatever that looks like, I do not know, but I'm looking forward to seeing what it looks like. And David Guzik says, There is a sense in which everything before this in the book of Revelation is an introduction to this revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now he returns to earth in power and glory. And also in verse 11, when Jesus comes, he comes on a white horse. Now, at the time, if you lived at the time, you would have lived in the Roman Empire. And if they had won a battle, the general who had won the battle would come and be a part of a triumphal procession or a victory parade. So he would come in with his legions and come up the main street, the Via Sacra, and come from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter on Capitine Hill and mounted on a white horse, the general rode at the head of his troops, followed by the wagon loads of booty that he had taken from the conquered nation and by the chained captives that were to be executed or sold in the slave markets of the city. So as we go through this account in Revelation 19 and later we read Zechariah 14, we're going to see that it pretty much matches <laughs> this picture of the conquering king, the victorious general, is pretty much like Jesus does, except Jesus comes into Jerusalem and not Rome. He has his captives. He receives booty. It says in uh, Zechariah, I think, that all the, the riches come into his kingdom, on the gold and the silver and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, a victory parade. This, that's what this is. It's a victory parade. He's already won the battle. The battle is won on the cross. This is when he's coming to receive the glory for his victory, to claim what is his. So verse 11, it says, faithful and true. So this glorious title shows that Jesus is the keeper of promises, including his promises for judgment. So it also says in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Interesting, isn't it? In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So Jesus comes as a judge and a general to make war. The world that rejected him before rejects him again. But this time, Jesus rejects those or judges those who reject him. And David Guzek has a quote. This is a Jesus we can't control. Here we see Jesus as someone who demands not only our attention, but also our submission. And he continues, We need to remember that this dramatic display of judgment comes only at the end of a long time of grace, patience and mercy. This is no rush to judgment. Jesus has amply displayed his nature of mercy, forgiveness and grace to this fallen world. 
He comes now to judge a world hardened and totally given over to their rebellion against him. Now, if you remember, for the last seven years, what has the world been doing? God has been saying, repent, and the world has been saying, no. He just keeps on saying again and again and again, but they refuse to repent of their sorceries, of their worship of demons, of their thefts, of their drug taking, all those things. God revealed himself to them in miraculous ways. They continue to refuse to repent. And what happens if you continue to refuse God's grace? Well, there's only judgment. And I've got a quote from John Belvoir describing this burning of God's grace. It says, All of these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment it is too late for men to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by his attribute of love. Now, if you listen to Ray Comfort, you know, he describes this as like making an idol. All right? People think, oh, I know I've done all those wrong things, and I've lied there from a lie, I've stolen there from a thief, and I've hated there from a murderer. I know that, but when I get to heaven, God's a God of love, he'll just forgive me, he'll let me in. No. You have made yourself an idol in your own image. (laughs) And it's made in your heart. You've broken the second commandment. You have made a false image of a God in your own mind. God will not wink at sin. He will judge sin. He's a good God. And it's his very goodness that will condemn you. And he does it all in righteousness. When we think about war, if you think about all the wars that are happening, it's all for bad things. Most of the time, the wars that we have on this earth are for selfish reasons. Power, money, ambition, prestige, whatever it might be. But when Jesus comes, it's not about any of that. Okay, His is a righteous war. He's doing it because it's right. That he's right in principle and in his purpose and his object. And in verse 12 it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now I've got a quote from Spurgeon to explain this. He does a really good job. Why are they like flames of fire? Why, first, to discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets here that Christ does not see. There is no lurid thought. There is no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit that he does not scan as easily as a man reads a page in a book. His eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and know us to our innermost soul. So pretty uh, powerful quote there from Spurgeon. God sees all. Therefore he would judge all. And verse 12, it says, On his head were many crowns. Now, what kind of crown did Jesus wear at his first coming? Yeah, a crown of thorns. Why did he wear a crown of thorns? Well, thorns are a product of the curse. Thorns came about because of the curse. God did not create thorns. There were no thorns in the original creation. Thorns have become a picture of the curse. When God cursed the earth because of Adam's sin. So at Jesus' first coming, he became sin. He became cursed, as it says in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That was before. Now it's the second coming. Now he comes wearing many crowns. So the ancient Greek word used for crowns here is the diadema. And it's the word used to represent the crown of royalty and authority, the golden crown that that king would wear. In contrast, you have the Stephanos crown, and it's like the wreath, like you weave those leaves together and the flowers. And so if you won something at the Olympic Games, you get this 
Stephanos crown, this reward crown. And that's the one that Satan wears when he comes in and deceives the world at the start of the tribulation. Satan does not have any royalty or authority of his own, but Jesus does. And not just one crown, but many crowns. So why many crowns? Well, David Guzik says, the fact that there are many crowns means that Jesus is the ultimate in royal authority and power. It is a visible manifestation of what we mean when we say king of kings. It is an expression of unlimited sovereignty. I like that. An expression of unlimited sovereignty. Now, it says in verse 12 also that he is a name written that no one else knew except himself. Maybe this could be the tetragrammaton, the YHWH, that make up the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, what does it mean? Well, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 6. And this is going to give us more information too about what happens when Jesus comes back to earth. He just doesn't go straight to the Mount of Olives. He actually goes via Bosra first. And this gives us some background, which is not in Revelation. So we're going to read over the course of this morning, we're reading some Old Testament prophecies which are going to give more detail to the second coming of Christ. So Isaiah 63, 1-6. Who is this who comes from Edom? from the city of Bosra, with his clothing stained red. Who is this in royal robes, marching in his great strength? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has power to save, who has the power to save. Why are your clothes so red, as if you have been treading out grapes? I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. So that answers that question, doesn't it? Why does Jesus' robe stain the blood? It says, their blood has stained my clothes. Continuing in verse 4 in Isaiah. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my long arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. So, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, but it doesn't occur in Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. So, Megiddo, there's the hill of Megiddo, the little tell there. Well, that's the tell, but Next to it, around it, is the big, massive, wide valley. It's a perfect staging ground. It's been used for many battles in the past. So, basically, they're going to use that as the staging ground for all the armies. But the actual fighting occurs in, I'm going to call it fighting, but it's not really fighting. (laughs) It's destruction of the armies, occurs in Bosra and Edom, and now that's Jordan, so next to the Dead Sea down there, in the hilly, mountainous region. Now why Bosra? Because this is the area where God is protecting and nourishing his people Israel for the last half of the seven-year tribulation, and we covered this when we were in Revelation chapter 12, so it's Revelation 12, 14. And this is why Revelation 14, 20 says the blood flowed for about 300 kilometers about the distance from Jerusalem to Bosra along the Jordan Valley. So all along this route, there's going to be the destruction of this army. Millions and millions and millions of soldiers are going to be destroyed. We'll find out how that happens in a little while. So the armies in heaven, God's people, us, the church, and most likely angels as well. But it will include us. Revelation 7.14 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So, I like that. Who are we? Called, chosen, and faithful. Uh, Jude 14-15 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, 
prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's amazing, hey? Before the flood, we have a prophecy of the second coming of Christ, coming back with his saints. It's pretty cool. So there's little doubt that angels will accompany Jesus with us, but the main idea here is that the Son of God leads the people of God from heaven against earth. Now, we don't wear any armour, but we do wear the fine linen, white and clean. And what does that represent? The righteousness of Christ. It's the garments of salvation, right? We overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. He accuses us, and our defence is the Lamb of God, his shed blood for us. Now, this is in contrast to the clean and bright. Okay, it's a different Greek word there. It's radiant, shining, okay? And there it's described as the righteous acts of the saints. So we, like it says in Daniel, those who win many souls will shine like the brightness of the stars forever. So in Revelation 19 verse 8, it talks about not just being clean, but bright or radiant. So it'll be like our reward. Verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, so don't get too close to Jesus when you talk. No, just kidding. Um, Jesus does not have a sword in his mouth. It's just a way of referring to the power of his word. If he speaks, things happen. How did the world come into being? He spoke and it appeared. It just popped into existence. And then in the same way, he's going to defeat his enemies just by speaking it. Because it says there, that with it he should strike the nations. So by the word of his mouth, he's also called in this passage the word of God, yeah? And Hebrews 4, 12-13 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. The world is sure going to be accountable when Jesus comes back. Again, back in verse 13, Jesus called the Word of God. Now, application, we have the written Word, the Bible. Now, what did Jesus say about the Bible? He said, your Word is truth. Okay, so what's the definition of truth? It's the Bible. Where do we find truth? It's in the Bible. And the written word points us to the living word, the word of God. And verse 15, it says, He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So again, this is referring to the Battle of Armageddon, what we call the Battle of Armageddon, when the Antichrist and all the armies of the world turn their guns on Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation. <laughs> As Hal Lindsay says, it's pure insanity. And this is mentioned, we've studied this before in Revelation 14, 19 and 20. I'll just read those two verses. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So there's two harvests here. One is for the righteous, one is for the wicked. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So that's about 300 Ks, as we spoke about before. Now, it says in verse 15, And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus comes to rule and reign in triumph and to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 predicted this, and it tells of the background to this, and it shows what God has been planning all along. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. 
So that's what the Antichrist is saying. That's what these people are saying. I mean, we're saying it today in our culture, but this is what the motto, the war cry will be in the Battle of Armageddon, I believe. They want to be free from God's influence, from God's control. Satan wants to rule the world. What's the response from God? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's Jerusalem. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So God the Father says to God the Son, Today I've given you this responsibility, this inheritance. You will have them. You will break them with a rod of iron. They be your possession. Verse 10 continues, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So notice the difference at the end. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But if you put your trust in him, you'd be blessed. So we're back in Revelation 19 now. Verse 16. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why on his thigh? Well, if you're riding a horse, maybe it's so it's easily seen. He's a king of kings and lord of lords. All other authority will be subject to him. He will rule the entire earth. Now we come to the next section, which is the invitation to the Great Supper. So let's read those two verses. It's Revelation 19, 17-18. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of all those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So an angel standing in the sun. So we're talking about the angel being bright, can you imagine, you know, we can't look at the sun. But this angel was standing in the sun and outshining the sun. Otherwise you wouldn't see it, right? That's how glorious these angels are because they've been in the presence of God. And verse 17, saying to all the birds that fly. So this is a preparation for the great slaughter of Armageddon. Maybe instead of calling it the Battle of Armageddon, we should call it the Slaughter of Armageddon. <laughs> There's going to be fine dining for the birds of prey on this day. Now, it's considered shameful in the scriptures to not be buried. So if someone was very wicked, one of God's penalties or judgments on them was for them not to have a burial. These people are not going to have a burial. Just like Jezebel, not the dogs this time, but the birds will eat their flesh. These unrepentant sinners will come to a shameful end. And the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and it repeats this five times. So man has been living after the flesh, longing to satisfy his flesh since the Garden of Eden, and now the flesh is destroyed. And it also shows that men of all stations, all levels, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, are all judged. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're a sinner, and you're unrepentant, you will be judged. And there's four different suppers in the Bible. There's the supper alluded to in Jesus' parable, the supper of salvation in Luke 14, 16-24. There's the Lord's Supper, communion, like in Luke 12. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we've just covered in Revelation 19.9. And then there's this last supper, the supper of the great God. So David Guzik makes the following observation. If you reject the first supper, 
that is the supper of salvation. The second supper, communion, will mean nothing to you. Then you will not be present at the third supper, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you will be present at the fourth supper. (laughs) Everybody gets to attend at least one of these suppers, but some will eat and others are eaten at the suppers. (laughs) So you can be invited to one where you partake of a great feast and you enjoy yourself with the beautiful food that God will put out for us or you can be the food you can be eaten by the birds now next section verses 19 and 21 the last section from chapter 19 war and the victory of Jesus Christ and I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, not a battle. It's a slaughter. It's a judgment. So verse 19 says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. So why would Satan be so stupid to think that he can keep Jesus from coming back by pointing some guns and missiles at him? Doesn't make sense. But what does it say in Proverbs Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So if you don't have the fear of the Lord, if you don't have reverence for the Lord, then you will be a fool, and you will make foolish choices. And it says to make war against him. So the whole earth is together, working together to make war against Jesus. And this is just the logical extension and climax of man's constant war against God since the fall. This is where it all ends. This is the climax. This is it. So this world is at war with God now. And this is just the climax. This is the pinnacle of it. And it's all going to be destroyed. And as I said before, where it says to make war, well, what war? Where's the war? John wrote no description about a battle. Did you notice that? There's no battle plan here. This is an entirely one-sided affair. It's, as I said, it's a judgment. And Donald Barnhouse put it this way, the battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. That's his way of putting it. Now, this reminds me of the scripture from Isaiah. Because we, the church, are coming down with Jesus and Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and this world system is all going to be destroyed. And Isaiah 54, 17, it came to mind. It says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So we come back wearing these clean white garments representing salvation, the garments of salvation. We're forgiven, we're cleansed by his blood. It's our heritage that every weapon formed against us and every tongue which has risen against us, we will condemn. You shall condemn. This is our heritage. So, We are suffering now. People are persecuting us. People are putting us down. People are lying about us. Guess what? It's all going to be turned around. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage or the future, the promise of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. Verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. The beast is who? 
the Antichrist, yep. As I said before, these go into the Hotel Lake of Fire, the first two guests, special guests, into the Hotel Lake of Fire, where they will be tormented in fire and brimstone for how long? Eternity, yeah. There is no end to this. So the lake of fire is what we normally consider hell. It's real. And there's nothing more important, I'll say that again, there's nothing more important than avoiding this place. It's also called, as we'll read later, the second death. I'll read it now. It's Revelation 20.14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Our first death is when our heart starts going boom, 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 yeah? That's the first death. We all, except for those who go up in the rapture, will experience the first death. However, the second death is when we stand before God, and if your name is not written in the book of life, you will be what? Condemned. Okay, you'll be condemned. What does the Bible say in Romans 8 verse 1? So now there is no condemnation. Yeah? So that's pretty good, eh? Avoid the second death. That's the whole point of what Christ has done for us, to bring us back into his presence, into fellowship with him. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Again, what battle? Jesus just speaks, and the bodies split open, and the blood flows, and the birds gorge themselves. So again, not a battle, it's a judgment. Now how do I know that the body is going to split open? Well, we're going to read a chapter in Zechariah chapter 14. And this chapter is specifically talking about the time when Jesus comes from heaven to earth and the stuff that happens when he sets up his kingdom. I'm going to read the first half today because the first half talks about his second coming. The second half, Zechariah 14, talks about the millennial reign, so I'll save that for next week. So this is pretty cool. So if you want to know exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, what's going to happen with the geography of the place, what's going to happen with the, the rivers, what's going to happen with the sun, the moon, this is it. This is this tells you everything. So let's read Zechariah 14, 1 to 15. It says, Watch. That's a good way of starting, isn't it? What did Jesus say? Watch, yeah. Do not be deceived. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered. Right in front of you. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem here. I will gather all nations to fight against who? Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity, and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. So, what's happening here? At the end... Just before Jesus comes back, the Antichrist is in the Promised Land. He's attacking Jerusalem. He's attacking Bosra. And he's, at the start, successful. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations. So at the very last minute, when everything seems, it's all gone, and Satan has won, no, Jesus comes back. And watch what happens. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. You will flee through this valley. So this is the, the believers in Jerusalem at that time. Those who repent at that time. Okay, Running away from the Antichrist and his armies who were still present at that time. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and his holy ones with him. Again, that's us and the angels. Now, the cosmic disturbances, this, what's going to happen to the moon and the sun, etc. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. Isn't that cool? Permanent daytime for the duration, I believe, of the 
millennial reign, the thousand year millennial reign. Now, verse 8, back in Zechariah 14. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. And we know from other passages that it will bring healing to the Dead Sea. And the Lord will be king over, what? All the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. So he will have complete control of the whole earth. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. All the land from Geba, north of Judah, to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, will become one vast plain. So no more little hills. It's just going to become one vast plain. So the geography in the millennial reign is going to be Jerusalem is going to be raised up and all the surrounding areas will be flat. So literally, we'll go up to Jerusalem, just like it is now, but more so. It says there, but Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place and will be inhabited all the way from the Benjamin Gate over to the site of the Old Gate, then to the Corner Gate and from the Tower of Hanel to the King's Wine Presses. And Jerusalem will be filled with people, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. So that's God's promise here. Now, verse 12 tells us what God is going to do to these soldiers, these armies that are coming against him. And the Lord will send a plague on the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will fight their neighbours hand to hand. So they're going to turn against each other. Now verse 14. Judah too will be fighting at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the neighbouring nations will be captured. Great quantities of gold and silver and fine clothing. So remember we talked about the triumphant entry where the general would bring the wealth or the plunder. Well this is the plunder coming in from those neighbouring countries. This same plague will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys and all the other animals in the enemy camps. So there you go. You want to know what it's going to be like? That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. There's another passage in Isaiah 64 verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens that you would come down. What did it say in Revelation 19? John said, I saw the heavens opened. Here it says in Isaiah, that you would rend the heavens, you open the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. And that will happen. So, this prayer for deliverance will be on the lips of Jewish people surviving through the Great Tribulation. Unlikely as it may seem now, they will cry out to Jesus, their Messiah, for deliverance. And as a whole, they will embrace him as their Saviour. As Jesus said in Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine, I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, I think. So, hard-pressed by the terrible persecution of the Antichrist, Israel as a whole will turn their hearts toward Jesus and he will deliver them at this late hour. So, going back a little bit, what were the two main reasons or purposes for the tribulation? One's fairly obvious, it's a judgment of the nations. But the second is the saving of the Jewish nation. It's causing them by this persecution, by these difficult times, to come back to him. That's the two purposes, the two main purposes for the seven-year tribulation. One, judgment of the nations, of the unrepentant Gentiles, and two, to bring Israel to repentance. So, not all Israel is going to come to believe. 
The scriptures predict that only about one-third of the nation will be saved, and we find that in Zechariah 13, verses 8 to 9, is just before what we read previously. It says, Two-thirds of the people in the land will be cut off and die, says the Lord, but one-third will be left in the land. I will bring that group through the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. So by the end of the seven-year tribulation, God's promise of national salvation for the nation of Israel will have been fulfilled. His purpose for the tribulation fulfilled. Now, it says this in Romans 11, 25 and 26. Because some people say that, oh, God's finished with Israel, but no. And we see this right at the end of the tribulation. God saves his people. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, Romans 11, 25 and 26, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves, talking to the people in the church. No, we're better than the nation of Israel. They reject the Messiah. No. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, if you go to Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, not all Israel is Israel. We're talking about, I won't read the whole thing now, but basically those who believe in the promise are the ones who are truly Israel. So, I'm going to finish by reading Jesus' own description of his second coming. All right. So there's lots of stuff in the scriptures about the second coming. Notice the similarities where Jesus speaks and he uses the same metaphors or literal things where the sun and the moon will give no light. And there's lots of passages in the Old Testament that um, say the same thing. Now, why am I finishing on this? Why is this important? Well, in this passage, Jesus issues a warning which is very relevant for today. Now, I've actually had someone ask me whether the rumors that the Messiah has returned in Jerusalem or to Jerusalem in recent times is true. Why would they be asking me that? Well, because people are running around claiming to be the Messiah, right? Here, Jesus tells us and predicts that false messiahs would come and they would be very deceiving. So let's read Jesus' account of the second coming in Matthew 24, 23-31. He says, Then if anyone tells you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive. If possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. Do you see how important this is? This second coming, people twist it and they say, oh, the Messiah has already come. Verse 26, Jesus continues, So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or, look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of the vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So notice there, there are no more sun and moon. And verse 30, and then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. So this is the gathering of the tribulation saints. He's going to come and get them and bring them to himself in Jerusalem. So the second coming, as an application here, as a summary, is going to be with power and great glory. And who's going to see it? Every eye will see him. 
and the earth and the heavens will never be the same. So the Mount of Olives will split, the river is going to flow from two directions, one east, one west, one towards the Dead Sea, one towards the Mediterranean Sea. But best of all, when Jesus comes back, we come back with him. So what has to happen first? If we're going to come back with him, then we have to first go up to meet him, yeah? So again, just pointing you back to the rapture, it's close. Okay, the things in the world, what's going in the Middle East, you know, everything's lining up. The Ezekiel 37, 38 battle, it's close. Okay, well, we've got to get busy sharing the gospel because there isn't much time and we want to bring as many people into the kingdom so they don't have to go into this tribulation period. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this awesome promise, Lord. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming. And so we look forward to this with great expectation and great honour. What an honour it is for us to come back with you, to watch this happen, to see our enemies be utterly defeated. Lord, we're not saying, ha, gotcha. But we are saying, Lord, you are righteous. And the wicked, the guilty must be punished and the innocent must go free. And that's what you've done. And we're going to be rejoicing in your righteousness. Lord, we're innocent. We're not guilty because you have made us innocent and not guilty because you have taken our sins away because of your blood. So thank you for that, Father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.